Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, and welcome back to another episode of the Box and One podcast. Our just our guest today, Brian Kalbrowski, Hoops Hype and For the Win. If you're on Twitter at all and you follow the NBA draft, I'm sure at some point you've seen Brian's work because he does a great job, not just of aggregating and, and really combining, putting out there what all these other great NBA draft minds are doing on the internet but also putting his own spin on things and showing some of his own content. So we're going to pick his brain today on the last few drafts on the upcoming 2022 NBA draft and just kind of see how he does business and walks that fine line between learning from other people and putting his own positive content out there. Brian, how are you? How's the holiday season treating you? It's good, man. I mean, it's, it's a weird time to be a basketball reporter. Uh, we're not getting the highest level of basketball. Uh, but, you know, hopefully someone uses these 10 day contracts to to make a little Christmas legend story for themselves. That's kind of what I'm written for right now as somebody who is on a 10 day to have just a, a crazy Christmas miracle kind of game. Yeah, one of those fairy tales that write themselves. And, and that's the world that we're in right now in this kind of COVID mania pauses where we're getting to the point in December where games and teams are, are really unable to, to field rosters in order to complete some of their scheduled obligations. I know our high school basketball team that I coach is on a COVID pause right now. So all of these different aspects of life are really being impacted. And, uh, and it makes for, as you said, a different type of product, but I think at the very least there's opportunity for guys. And that's something that, you know, for you and I who have covered the draft the last several years and know a lot of these players that are on the fringes of breaking into the NBA, it's really positive to see them finally get this opportunity. But Brian, before we go there, and before we start talking specifically about these players, I want to ask you one question that we ask all of our guests to start off our podcast. Your team is up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What is it that you would instruct your team to do? Uh, I, think, I think you play defense. I think that that's kind of the, the main thing. Uh, that, that I would probably like to see from my team. That being said, I've never coached at any level and I've never been in charge of a group of players that had to uh, listen to my opinion on what the, uh, what the move should be. Um, I think that uh, I, I'm somebody who doesn't really like to uh, live with regret. And I think when you give somebody, you know, a trip to the foul line, you can kind of regret like, man, we really just gave it to them. Um, but also it kind of depends on the personnel, you know, knowing your personnel is such a huge part of, of basketball on both sides of the floor. And obviously if let's say I have like a Matisse Tybel type and I'm going against a team that has no three point shooters, like, you know, it's better than if I'm going against someone like Steph Curry and I've got no perimeter defense. So uh, obviously that's a cop out of an answer, but I think my instinct is, is probably not to foul. What's the more common answer? Uh, you know, the most common one we've gotten now is to foul, but I think that it comes with the asterisk or the caveat of, having practice time set aside to teach your players when, where, and how you want to foul, right? Moving away from the basket, making sure they're not in a shooting motion, all these different kind of factors to it. And it's, it's one of those questions that I think sparks a lot of really good dialogue and conversation. I'm, I'm glad that kind of you mentioned knowing your personnel, KYP, right? It's the first thing that right. we could just talk about all the time is, as being really important, not just in scouting reports and your opponent, but really who you are and what you can do best. Because, you know, I had a discussion a long time ago with a good college coaching buddy of mine who always would say, the head coach that I work for is an unbelievable teacher of defense. We're, we're a fantastic man-to-man -man defensive team. So we're going to bet on ourselves in those moments because right. that's our identity and who we are. And that it, right. it goes hand in hand with trying to figure out what you're going to do in those late game situations is who are you? Right. Yeah, I think that I would tend to think that my brain is closer to the uh, to the general manager side in terms of roster construction than the coaching side. And I know if I were a roster constructor, I would be a very uh, defense-oriented mind. And I know that I would have as many perimeter defenders and as many uh, kind of lockdown dudes as possible. I think that, you know, guys like Jared Vanderbilt, Isaiah Hardenstein, like that's how, that's how you build championship teams. Alex Teruso, honestly, the guys who are a little bit cheaper um, than uh, some of the high volume scores that exist for kind of similar minutes. So that's at least what I think my team would look like if I were in charge of a team, which is why I think that I would not sell. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we are hopeful that one day we get to see you in charge of a team <laughs> and that your path takes you there eventually. But what I'd love to hear more about 
is kind of your background and, and the path that has taken you to where you are now. Brian, talk to us a little bit about you know, how you got to cover the NBA draft, writing for, for Hoop Hype and, and on all these different kind of article places that you've been at before, because you pump out content like nobody's business. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm from Los Angeles. I've always wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, once University of Oregon, got a journalism degree, covered a little bit of Oregon basketball and Oregon football uh, while I was out there. Uh, was really involved with the Oregon student section. Um, got pretty close to a lot of the Oregon basketball players while I was there, uh, which includes, you know, I guess in my time, it was Dylan Brooks, Jordan Bell, uh, Chris Boucher, Tyler Dorsey, um, in terms of guys who actually made the NBA, but, um, or at least at some point made the NBA. Um, and I guess Peyton was maybe there for a year. I'm not sure if he was or if he wasn't. He may have been, I may have graduated by the time he got there. Um, but you know, had a really big interest in seeing which of those guys were able to turn pro. Um, and then when I graduated, I worked at Fox Sports, covered the NBA uh, with some phenomenal writers there, um, including Jovan Buha, Fred Katz, uh, Michael Pina. So it was, it was a really all-star team for me to be at uh, coming out of college. I was really grateful. Um, eventually got picked up by USA Today and have been there uh, for, shoot, man, like five years, I guess, at this point almost and um, was originally covering the NFL and switched to the NBA because I prefer basketball quite a bit more. And uh, one of the things that I was assigned by my editor at Hoops Hype, uh, Jorge Sierra, was to do an aggregate mock draft. That's something that he wanted to see just for his own curiosity. Um, I had never really followed the NBA draft in earnest before that. Um, I wasn't one of those guys who was traveling on the AAU circuit and going to Hoops Hall and, um, you know, going to big scouting events that wasn't ever really something that was a part of my schedule um but it was an assignment that I got to kind of just take a look at the mock drafts that existed um I think I started doing that probably 2018 for the first time and that was sort of it uh then I started kind of as a journalist getting more and more curious about it um developing relationships with some of the agents who represented the players who I was writing about in the aggregate mock drafts uh because they were seeing what I was writing about every month I was reaching out being like, hey, this player is ranked too low. Why is this player ranked too low? And I was thinking, well, man, I, these are not based on my opinion in any way. This is just completely consensus, um, which obviously gave me the idea because I was talking to these agents, like, you know, talking to these coaches who are reaching out to from colleges who are reaching out uh, saying this guy's ranked too low, this guy's ranked too low. And I'm like hearing their points and I'm doing my own research and like, well, I have no say in it. And so that's when I started to kind of want to do my own coverage um, is, well, if I can add my own spin, uh, maybe I could help uh, at least give my opinion a little bit more weight as well. Um, and, you know, in doing my own mock drafts, you know, I also developed a big interest as a journalist and talking to the players too. Uh, that's something that I find to be way more interesting than any of my mock drafts, any of my big boards, any of my consensus mock drafts, any of my um, you know, draft stock updates in general is just doing features on these profiles and on these players. Uh, the one that I wrote on Bone, Bones Highland last year um, is one of my favorite pieces of content that I've ever done. Uh, I'm really, really proud of it. And um, he's one of, you know, over the last three drafts, probably maybe 70 players that I've interviewed, honestly, in terms of guys who were at least on top 60, top 75 draft boards over the last like two years. Um, so I've done a ton of them, but, you know, the goal is to do the storytelling where when you look at the NBA draft, um, you know, these are guys coming into the league who haven't told their story yet. And I want to be a part of that narrative. I want to help shape their stories, uh, shape who they are in terms of what people are hearing about them because, uh, NBA veterans have told their stories so many times. Uh, and for, and for me, um, you know, being in locker rooms, being credentialed here in Brooklyn, I've spent a lot of time, you know, hearing guys give the same canned answers over and over and over again, and being able to talk to these guys who want to talk to you, want to improve their draft stock, uh, want to really show who they are and tell the world who they are, uh, and then potentially just, you know, be the first one to share that story. That's the part that's most interesting to me, um, more so than any of the, the metrics or any of the things that I actually write about more. Um, it's good for me to know who the good players are so I can target those players for, for future profiles down the road. Um, but I, I definitely prefer the storytelling aspect of them and, you know, being a part of that narrative is really fascinating for me.
Yeah. And, and, and Brian, like that's one of the reasons I think you're an invaluable resource for a lot of the work that I do is, you know, I always go to your pages and everything you put out there is kind of that, that first check-in for what's the pulse on this prospect? What are other people saying and seeing? How do we aggregate that in comparison to everybody else on draft boards? And, and I know you talked a little bit about agents that come in and like, I think it's, it's college coaches, it's agents, and it's parents or family members a lot of times who are the ones that are reaching out to us in our DMs because they know that we have very, very small, but at least some influence yeah. over public perception. And well, if there's one thing that I've learned over the last several years in doing this is that public perception does have a lot of influence on kind of how front offices do their work, not necessarily in what player they pick, but in how they're constructing their board and trying to anticipate what other teams are going to do, because a great amount of research goes into trying to understand all of the elements at play at that playing field. So again, as I try to do my work, you're the first place that I go to for any of that. And I think it's, it's really, really invaluable, not just for, for teams, but for us, you know, who are, who are trying to get a better feel for this. And, and I just want to make sure that people, you know, know a little bit more about, your background and what you do. So I'm glad that you're telling your story in that regard. But by my account, you're one of the best gatekeepers out there. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. And, and it's really about, again, like you, you get one-on-one access to guys. You're able to have those interviews with prospects, which provides the kind of character analysis that I think is always missing from people like us. You know, I can spend hours and hours a day watching film on synergy or finding ways to break down what these prospects do, but the, the number one rule that we have in kind of our quote unquote scouting department and, and the way that I run things is that it's always about people, right? Right. Like when you draft somebody, you are making an investment for multiple millions of dollars in that person. And the, right. the one piece of context that's always going to be missing for me, somebody who just sits at my laptop stares at film and does this stuff is going to be the character of that individual, how they come across, how they carry themselves. Now, I'm fortunate that, you know, I've been a college coach before and have started to develop some, some contacts and resources to have those conversations with, but your Rolodex is much deeper than mine. And you're getting in the room with these guys one-on-one because like you said, they are eager to get their names out there and tell their story. So in, in that respect, I think the character side of things is really, really important. I'm just going to gonna jump right to prospect interviews and, and kind of how you've done a, on, on that aspect. I mean, you mentioned Bones Highland piece. Who are some of the other guys that you've interviewed that you were really impressed by or kind of liked the, the total outcome of, of your time with them? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, man, I really appreciate all the kind words and uh, definitely want to clip all that out and send it to everybody so they know that I'm doing good work but um you know I think I think the other thing that's worth mentioning through all of this is but I think that I wouldn't have a relationship with too many scouts or as many NBA scouts and executives as I did if I didn't have the one-on-one access that I've developed over the years um and it's gotten to a point uh where over the last couple of seasons as I've done more and more draft interviews I've had scouts reach out to me and ask about character of certain players and ask you know what I felt from my interview, just from a personal level uh, about that conversation. And then, you know, I'm able to keep that relationship with that scout next time I have a question about somebody before I go to reach out for either a big board placement or reach out for an interview request with their contacts. So the scouts have done a really great job of having a back and forth with me too, to give me insights. And I'm really grateful for that part of it. And, um, you know, I think in that sense, I, remember after I interviewed Xavier Tillman um, in the 2020 class, uh, calling up the scout that I'm closest with and basically saying like, you've got to call this, you've got to call this guy and get him in for a Zoom interview as soon as you can. He's, he's going to blow you away because I was familiar with this scout's big board and I knew where Xavier placed. And I was like, you're, you're wrong about this kid. Like or this man, Xavier Tillman is a, a very much a grown man. Like that was yeah. how he presented himself. That was, He's Xavier Tillman Sr. You know, that is a, a distinct point. And I was somebody who was just completely blown away by his presentation and his, his knowledge of the game and his understanding of who he could be as a player. Um, I think in a, in a similar light, um, in a different way, uh, that same class, I personally 
moved to Isaiah Stewart up my big board by probably 20 spots. Um, I believe I had him low second round uh, before I spoke to him. And once I got in touch with him, uh, just completely changed my opinion about everything about him. I was like, this was probably the best big man in the class. And thankfully he proved himself to be right. Um, but, you know, he, 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 came, he carried a confidence uh, and a passion for the game that I think is uh, fuel that you need to be great in the NBA, the kind of fuel that you have to not back down from someone like LeBron James in a physical fight. Um, I mean, that takes the kind of courage that only Isaiah Stewart has. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, those sort of things come off in a way that I can't even put a measure on besides just saying, I'm going to bet on this kid. Um, so, you know, I think in doing this for the last few years, there are guys that I've uh, been doing that for after talking to them. Um, favor to the player or to the agent it has to make sense uh, to me based off of who they're presenting themselves as. And it's usually the guys who uh, end up um, being the guys who uh, have the best understanding of who they are. Um, Trey Murphy was was somebody who uh, was came in like the hundredth percentile for me in terms of how I would grade out an interview. He was just outstanding with his knowledge of the of the game, his knowledge of uh, breaking down film, breaking down numbers, knowing exactly what his role can be and how he can fill it, um, and just his is just he, he was funny and he was he was uh, charming and he was somebody who who really impressed me. Um, when I spoke to Josh Primo, uh, everybody who was you know, like trashing that pick on Twitter. I was like, you've never talked to this kid. Um, I was I was with Josh on draft night, and I was able to kind of really get to know not only him but also his family. And it, it couldn't be more clear that the Spurs were betting on Josh Primo uh, to be the person that he says he's going to be. And everybody that said, oh, how could you draft this kid so high? It's like you've never met him, you know. Like that's why that you've ever had a chance to meet this kid as an 18 year old because as an 18 year old, this is who he is what's he going to be at 22? And when you talk to him at 18, you see that maturity, you imagine that he's going to be a very poised, self-aware, positive NBA player at 22 at the worst. And, um, and, and that's and Brian, how long you're under contract for. Well, and, and I think the, the major part of this that you just struck a chord with me on is like, we've never talked to them before. That's, I think that's the, the crazy part about all this is everyone is an expert on a complete stranger. And, and right. I'm guilty of this myself. I've only met maybe a handful of the guys that have ever gone through this NBA draft prospect, uh, you know, process since I started doing this work. But at the end of the day, it is just, it's about the person because you can be as talented as, as anybody in the world, but if you're not going to work, if you're not going to get better and you're not going to represent the organization in the right way, then it's, it's kind of a, a bad investment. And, and that's at the end of the day, there's so many different factors at play here, right? Anytime you're trying to project what somebody will turn into as a basketball player, you have to do the, the work on this end. You have to watch the film, find out what their strengths are, what areas they need to improve, come up with a plan for how you're going to get them there. Then there's the financial side of things, right? What pick are you using? How much money is going into this person? How much money are you projecting you're going to have to be able to put in in so many different areas of development? And then there's that crucial part. Are they going to hold up their end of the bargain? Are they going to be an outstanding citizen? Are they going to be somebody who continues to work hard? And it's just, we don't talk about that third prong enough, right? We talk so much about the basketball side of things and not the personal side of things. The last time I checked, games are about two and a half to three hours long. You know, there's you 20 person, hours, yeah. Yeah, 21 other hours in a day that these people are representing your organization. What are they doing in the off season? Are they involved with things in the community? Like I, I remember you and I talked after your interview with Sadiq Bey, where yeah. he was going a little bit more in depth on philosophy. And that was something that really struck, stuck with you. And I'd always been a, a big fan of Sadiq. I coached one of his high school teammates. And I coach here in the DMV area. So I have some familiarity with his high school program. Obviously know that Jay Wright, and, and one of the things that I trust about Coach Wright is that he has that same and similar process. If you remember back to when Lonnie Walker was uh, from Reading, Pennsylvania, trying to choose what college he went to, he chose Miami because of his love for animals and the ability to connect with Jim Laranega, the head coach at Miami, and have 
really this buy-in to, hey, it's not just about me as a basketball player, it's about me as a person. And, and that's the part of this, it, maybe it's my background as a recruiter, but that's the part of this that doesn't get talked about enough. It's really not all about the basketball product. It's about the person too. And, and that's where, again, you've been the go-to resource for me. And one of the reasons why agents are picking your brain and these teams are coming to you is because they know the value in winning over an organization from a personality perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, like I said, there, there are guys who have moved up on big boards. There are guys that I've moved down or actually removed from big boards after shotting with them as well. Um, and, you know, the reality is, is that while I put out a big board that's a lot of names, um, there, there are some players who I, I wouldn't draft at all that might be ranked higher on certain big boards um, than on others uh, just because I don't, I don't buy into them or what they're going to be about. Uh, in the NBA. And, you know, it's hard for, I think it's a little bit easier to, to improve certain basketball skills and certain um, personality skills. Um, and there, there are just some guys who, uh, while they might be top 10, top 15 talent, um, I'm not, I would, if I were a GM, I wouldn't give them a multi-million dollar contract over a period of four years when there are other similarly talented players who might be available that I'd rather do that for. So, um, you know, it, it didn't surprise me at all um, when someone like Austin Reeves, who went undrafted, was able to turn that into a two-way and then turn that into a fully guaranteed deal. Um, you know, when I when I got dinner with him um, in Jersey and then went to his workout um, and hung out with him, you know, his camp for for the for the night that I did, I was pretty convinced after that experience, this guy is going to come in to the NBA and be the role player that the team wants him to be whatever team that's going to be. And some guys never get that. Um, some guys never grasp that. And, you know, it is what it is, but that's a huge part of what I want my long-term role in the NBA draft community to be is helping identify those players in terms of just their answers and their, their part of the storytelling. Well, let me ask you this then, Brian, because I think you do a great job of identifying, articulating, and at least in our conversations, making sure that you adjust your, your board accordingly. And, and maybe it's just because our, our Twitter DMs are flowing that I know the behind the scenes process of it. But I mean, do you feel like this interview and the positive interviews that you have, the guys who impress you or the guys who, who maybe not so much, do you feel like that that's been a positive indicator of NBA success, the guys who impress you in interviews go on to have pretty good and stable careers. And the guys who you walk away with some doubts of are kind of the first guys to flame out. Uh, I will say with like a 95% correlation. Yes. Huh. Um, and that's a lot more of a strong correlation than shooting percentage, honestly, um, <laughs> or, or points per game. Um, obviously like I only, you know, you talk about games being two, two and a half hours, you know, for the most part, I'm only really doing a Zoom or a phone conversation with these guys. So for the most part, it's really hard for me to say for certain, for certain who these guys are, because while you have a two and a half hour game, I've got maybe 15 minutes to an hour, depending on how much time we both want to give each other agreed upon beforehand. Um, and so who you are during that interview versus who you are the other 23-ish hours of the day. Um, depending on the interview, sometimes I get longer. Uh, sometimes I'll hang out with them. It's hard. It's hard to say that's for sure who you are. But for the most part, and I've obviously been wrong before. I think I've got a pretty good read of people, and how people come into an interview is kind of how they present themselves the rest of the day as well. Um, you know, there, there's like when when Ayo Desumu came to the combine last year uh, in a full suit, even though he wasn't doing anything. Like that didn't surprise me at all. Like he is like that kind of a guy who comes from that kind of a family who wants to present himself as well as possible at all times. And he came to that interview with me in the 2020 draft accordingly. Um, and I wasn't surprised at all that he came to the 2021 NBA draft combine that way um, because of, that's just who he is. You know, that doesn't make him a better player per se, but some of these traits can kind of lead into things about you that do make you a good player, uh, such as the willingness to improve uh, the willingness to, uh, be self-aware to be like, okay, maybe I was a volume. I mean, like, you know, I talked about Austin Reeves. Austin Reeves was the biggest shot creator in the nation last year at Oklahoma. And he hasn't made one off the dribble uh, through or one unassisted 
one unassisted three-pointer this season. They've all been catch-and-shoot uh, three-point shots this year. It's the exact opposite of his role last year because he knows that in the NBA, he's going to be a catch-and-shoot guy, uh, at least at first. Uh, and Peyton Pritchard kind of had a similar effect uh, coming from Oregon uh, to the Celtics, you know. And, and I think that that sort of ability to to identify who you are and what you need your role to be and be adaptable um, is, is super, super big. Yeah, and that that strongly correlates with character. And, and, and look, Brian, I, I can already anticipate some of my my DMs or comment sections after this episode and people coming to me like, I, they probably find it amazing that agents, general managers, scouts, people are actually contacting you about trying to get a feel personality-wise for somebody who might spend 30 minutes on a Zoom call or you know, three hours, four hours with their camp, watching them work out, having dinner for an evening and trying to see that that matters. Like two parts to this. One, these are people who are really diligent and trying to make sure that every interaction matters. And they do their research to the, to the nth of every single degree to try to make sure that what they're seeing continues to hold weight with other people. The other part of this, the digging that goes into the background side, on some of these players is meticulous. And that's something that's not necessarily talked about enough. I know it's a little anecdotal, but one story I had one of my first years in high school coaching was working for a boss who used to be a head coach of a bunch of guys that were, you know, high division one level. And he got a call from a scout asking about a, a certain player who we, we won't name here, but who was in his program for one year when he was a freshman in high school before transferring out. And he wanted to know about the player's work ethic. What was he like in the off season? Did you have to drag him out of bed or get him to workouts? Have that whole process go? What was he like as you know as a teammate and somebody in the locker rooms and on the bench? Didn't ask one question about him as a actual basketball player, just for trying to get to know him as a person. And this was from I think six years in the past for one year of a kid who ended up transferring out and leaving the program. They are thorough and they want to know every single detail and reason and explanation why. So. Again, the character side of things, which is, is where this podcast has really pivoted to, is that it's, it almost ends up being all about character to some level, is the depths that these teams will go to to find out the answers that they need knows no bounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my conversations are going year round. Um, you know, I don't really start the interview process until guys start declaring and testing the waters at least. Um, but the conversations that I'm having with other evaluators, uh, and these scouts and agents who are honestly, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the guys who are investing millions of dollars. Agents are also investing millions of dollars in some cases, not necessarily their own money, but in terms of future earnings and stuff. And so I'm getting a lot of agents who also reach out um, being like, you know, what do you think of this guy as a potential recruit for me? And, and so it goes both ways. Yep. No doubt. No doubt about it. And, you know, one area that I've always struggled with be you know, kind of more on the subject of aggregation, right. Of looking at, what else is out there and kind of the consensus is pointing to. I always find it very difficult to maintain my own opinions without getting influenced by what other people are thinking while looking at what other people are thinking, right? I think we all search just on a basic human level for affirmation that our opinions, what we're thinking is echoed somewhere else, that we're not the only one who sees or believes it. Because having a, a, an opinion and being the only one on that island is very lonely and, and uncomfortable for a lot of people. So what I really am curious with for you as somebody who start, has started over the last few years, putting your opinion, your spin, your own rankings on things a little bit more, your profession is to aggregate a lot of this stuff. How do you tune out that noise and try not to let it affect your own evaluation? Um, it helped that you know, I think maybe the first time I ever put out a big board, this was probably still during the season. I think I had Ty, uh, Tyrell Terry at like 12. And that was way higher than the consensus had him at that point. And I think there were a couple of other guys who I was a little higher on. Um, and it helped that uh, the first scout that I ever got like a really good communication with called me and was like, yo, your rankings are super different than everybody else's. I needed to just meet you and figure out where you're coming from with this kind of stuff. Uh, so it helped that uh, I got a positive feedback right away from going against the grain. Um, so I'll be forever indebted to that scout for encouraging me to think different in that sense um, than the other uh, people that I look at. Obviously, you know, Tyrell ended up moving up the draft boards. Um, 
But for me, you know, the, the consensus that I like to track um, and, you know, funnily enough, the one I put out at Hoopstype is actually a smaller version of one that I keep internally. Um, I have a much more detailed tracker uh, with some, you know, private big board rankings from uh, people who um, don't want their big boards ranked at all publicly, uh, yeah. but send them to me regardless. So um, I, I like looking at those to track progress of momentum um, more so than my opinion. Uh, you know, I also do mock drafts and, you know, there, there was actually, um, Owen Phillips, I think was grading, uh, mock drafts at the end. And he noted that I was the only person to correctly predict on a major publication, at least that Scotty Barnes was going to go to the Raptors. Um, everybody else I think had slugs going there. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's a, not, it's barely even a victory. I mean, it was a, it was a weird thing that one, one spot difference. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but if I was just looking at a mock draft, um, and other people's mock drafts and, and picking, uh, where, you know, Scotty is going based off of what, you know, Jonathan Wasserman, Jonathan Gavoni, you know, Sam Bassini think, um, nobody would ever go back to my stuff from a journalist perspective. It would just be fairly, fairly useless for me to put out my own thing at that point. Um, which is why I make the aggregate mock draft very clear. That's just what it is. It's just, yeah. you know, this is what the consensus is feeling right now. Um, but mine's going to be different because that's the whole point. So how, how I go about doing that is mostly just kind of trusting my gut um, about who's telling me things and, you know, why I trust them. And, you know, also looking at the numbers. And the one thing that I want to say really, really fast about it is that when I look at mock drafts, you know, I have to give a reason for pretty much every pick, you know, and famous with a big board. So I, I, what, I, what I like to say is, like, I need a case. You know, even if the case is like um, kind of middling, like I need something to write down. And if the player is not playing well, you know, there's only so much I can say about his about his frame or about his size that is more convincing. And anytime I can point to a specific number and be like, yo, he's doing something that only Matisse Tybel's ever done. Or he's doing something that, you know, only two players did so far this season, 50, 40, 90, right? Whatever it might be. Like if I have a, if I have a legitimate one or two liner that I can use to justify my point, like I need, I, that's how I'm able to differentiate it. No, and I think the the difficult part of any type of writing or putting out content right now is that there's so many people who just go along with the grade and kind of copy and paste what others do, and then there are also people who decide I'm just going to be different and have a contrarian opinion, and this is where I'm going to go with it. And both are really dangerous, right? Because on one, one hand, it's an echo chamber and you're just shouting out opinions that other people really have and you're parroting. And on the other hand, you're very blindly just pulling shots and, and hoping that it sticks without much reason behind it. And that's where, again, whether it's the way that you write the side conversations that we have, I know that there's reason and there's nuance behind that. I'm glad you brought that to the table. Yeah, one thing I'll add to that too is I have a, total willingness to be wrong about a guy um there there are some folks who uh decide about a player a certain thing that they have decided and just stick to it and they're like well i had this guy ranked 63 you know a couple months ago and i i'm gonna double down and find everything wrong with him to make sure he stays at 63 so i don't look stupid for having him in 63 beforehand man there could be somebody who i had completely unranked and i start looking more at him i'm like the top 20 guy what was I doing you know or he was somebody who was like look at Jonathan Davis you know I don't think I even had him in my last mock draft and then my last big board I think I had him top 15 and it's like the, the more you look at a player the more you look at his numbers the more you hear about somebody the more you really see that his case is not just a small sample size the more it's like yeah I don't care if I had him unranked like this is this guy's a top 15 guy top 20 guy um so the only well the only thing more insufferable than clinging on to my own draft stock Twitter is victory lap Twitter, right? Victory lap draft Twitter. Just, it, it kind of drives me crazy. Like the, the mainly I'm going to say probably 90, 95% of the time, the only times that I'm looking at NBA players and trying to figure out who it is that we, we scouted and where they ended up is trying to figure out what I got wrong, right? Trying to go in and diagnose so that I can become a better scout, learn from some of those mistakes that I might've made before not necessarily going around and saying, this was the guy that I had 13th and everyone else had him 28th on their board. Look at me. 
pat on pat myself on the back. And it's, I just don't think it accomplishes much in terms of, you know, scouting purposes. It might get you a little bit more instant clout, but uh, that's, I think one of the reasons why I try not to spend a lot of time just refreshing the timeline and being on Twitter a lot, it can be uh, pretty dangerous and, and just scary to see what people think of themselves out there. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, yes. <laughs> I think that's kind of, that's kind of, uh, that's sort of all I can really say. Yeah. So Brian, I, I think now's the time to, to head over to the mailbag, right? Um, yeah. I hope that there's, there's anybody out there who has been, been listening on gained something and, and at the very least knows to follow your work now, if they are, haven't been already. But one of the things that you and I wanted to do here was answer some initial questions, whether it's about, you know, this year's crop of NBA draft talent, some, philosophical questions about how we go through the draft so we opened up our twitter mentions we opened up our youtube content and asked for user questions in there so we're going to fire some of the way i'm going to give you the first chance at, at answering them before we dive in there sound good yeah sounds good all right well first question here is from the twitter user no more layups how do each of the leagues that we scout the nbl g league all the euro leagues and the ncaa stack up against each other and how does that affect how you evaluate players? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I will say that you know I'm privileged to have access to Synergy. Um, my my writing definitely mentioned Synergy quite a bit uh, as such because that's a huge part of my workflow. It's like the central part of my workstation. Um, so the fact that you know I am able to com- compare guys within percentiles to who they're competing against. Um, at certain possession types, you know, whether it's pick and roll or post up or whatever it might be, um, is is incredibly valuable to me. Um, I haven't played the game at the highest level to know, you know, who the, you know, most talented players that, you know, in the world are at right now, but I do notice trends and, you know, you're seeing more guys come out of the NBL, um, you know, to the NBA than, than ever over the last few years. You know, you're seeing, obviously, the G League Knight. You know you're going against, you know, grown men instead of college players. So the fact that, you know, Jalen Green was putting up as many points per game as he was against, you know, guys who had played professional basketball and NBA basketball was incredibly uh, incredibly impressive. And, um, you know, the reason why I bring up Synergy is because also, like, it's, it's been hard, you know, for, for me to evaluate someone like uh, Gene Montero without um, having that same access. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, lower on him than I should be, but at the same time, like, it's just hard for me to see, you know, how he stacks up with compared to other guys. So, um, you know, I think that you might be able to speak better to uh, how it stacks up uh, in terms of uh, fully comp- uh, the competition level, um, you know, but we know what the NCAA is, you know, we know what uh, that pipeline to the NBA is. And, you know, we're seeing the Ignite be really successful uh, as well. Um, and I, I really love what I've seen from the NBL too. So I definitely think that I'm excited to see uh, more leagues come about too. Yeah, well, overtime elite, I have no idea how to evaluate. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. I have not been able to watch a full game. I, I don't have reliable access to stats, to clips. Like I, I have no clue. So I'm putting that in left field right now. But I think right now, of all of those leagues that players can play in before coming into the NBA, right? The NBL, the G League, the multitude of European leagues, and the NCAA. Those are the main four. The top European leagues tend to be the best in terms of talent, in terms of organization, competitiveness, but we also see less usage from some of the top prospects. They tend to be guys that maybe play eight to 18 minutes a game. It's very rare you find a young player who does what Luka Doncic did and ends up playing those major minutes. And I don't want to interrupt you too soon, but I will say I've heard a lot of narratives about Luca, you know, saying, well, you know, for every Luca, there's a Jan Vesely, there's a, there's a this, there's a that. And it's like, no, there was never a Luca before this. There was never a guy before 18 years old winning MVP of the Euro League. Like, that's never, that's not a thing. Like, yes, there's been other European prospects who dropped, who got drafted early, but what Luca was doing in the Euro League was not happening. Like that just doesn't happen for someone that young ever from a draft prospect. And that should have been probably the first indicator that this kid was, was special and different in a lot of different ways. So those, but 
but I think it, the context that's needed is that that was at the top of the top of those European leagues. Not every single European league is the same, right? Like the, the Adriatic League is very different than the second Spanish league in terms of talent level, organization, all those different factors. I think the G League is probably the best in terms of athletic talent right now, but it leaves a little bit to be desired in terms of scheme. I think it's a little bit more simplistic just mainly due to the fact that there are so many players that go in and out constantly. They have to keep things simple in order to accommodate the new players to come through. Then there's the NBL, which has, as you said, come on a lot the last few years. One of the biggest lessons I've learned as a scout is how high level and physical and really a lot more apples to apples success can be there uh, to the NBA level. I think LaMelo Ball, Josh Giddy are guys who came in and both played similar roles in the NBA that they did in the NBL. So that, that's been eye-opening to me over the last few years where that's raising a lot in terms of level of competition and how you evaluate in my book. But the NCAA is different. And one of the things that I like about it is, again, that apples-to-apples comparison. I like seeing how guys fare against players who are physically similar, who are their own age, because it helps me see what they're going to perform like at their NBA ceiling. You know, you're not necessarily drafting – a 19-year-old, if you're the Denver Nuggets, to see what he's going to do next year when he's 20. You want to develop him and make sure that he gets to the point where he's comfortable and plays to his best on the court when he's 22, 23, 24, and beyond. And that's what college can be really, really valuable at providing. Um, the evaluation of players in different leagues is different as a result. I think you have to look at different identifiers, right? Like for me in those pro leagues, I'm always looking for how competitive guys are. Uh, I, I don't think that the, the volume of the stats that they produce is as important in the G League or in Europe as it is in maybe in college, where I'm looking at somebody who's shooting you know, 28% from three in college over a long season, and that might be more of a negative for me than if somebody comes in, plays 12 minutes a game, shoots 28% from three, but is playing in a professional league. I'm a little bit more able to wrap my mind around excusing something like that. So I think the context of that is, is pretty important, but we're, we're at the point too where the talent level is just so high across the board amongst all these prospects that the context of situations, what no matter what league you're going to be in, there are going to be guys that deserve to be drafted and are, are future pro players. 100%. All right. Next question here was from friend of the podcast, Stephen Gillespie at Stephen Gillespie on Twitter. How many teams do you think will have three or more players selected in the upcoming 2022 NBA draft? Kind of an interesting thought here. I don't know if you uh, if you want to start on this one or if you want me to, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I wrote down some names beyond the ones that you sent me. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll let you read yours first, and then I'll add some ones to that afterwards. Yeah. So I, I looked at this and I saw four teams that are major candidates to have three or more players drafted and four that are kind of right on that cusp. So for me, the G league ignite, I don't know if, if Stephen meant to really include them as part of this process, but with all the, the talent that they have with Jaden Hardy, Dyson Daniels, Marshawn Beauchamp and, and Michael Foster. I think maybe all four of those guys get drafted, but most likely three will. Duke, talented team this year. They might have five guys drafted with Paolo Bancaro being in the mix for a top three pick. A.J. Griffin, Mark Williams as potential first rounders, and then guys like Wendell Moore, Trevor Keels. I would put Gonzaga on that list because they have, again, a multitude of names, Chet Holmgren being the headliner. I'm not really sure what to make of all the other guys, whether or not they'll even declare, right? Guys like Nolan Hickman or Hunter Salas might come back for an additional season. And then for me, Baylor ends up being the fourth team on that list. Two guys that I love in Kendall Brown and Matthew Meyer. And then Jeremy Sohan has impressed a lot this year as well. Kentucky, Arizona, UCLA, and Kansas, some of those you know, typical blue buds that have NBA caliber talent. I think we're reaching more into the second rounds with those guys like Ty Ty Washington and, and Benedict Matherin, our first round picks. Peyton Watson, from UCLA, who knows if he's going to come out or, or you know, what's going to happen at, at Kansas with guys like Jalen Wilson or, or Christian Brown, but they're definitely worth tracking at this point. I think there are four locks though, the Ignite, Duke, Gonzaga, and Baylor. Who'd I miss? 
Yeah, I think you missed, I mean, alphabetically speaking, just going through my list, sure. the guys that appeared the most, uh, Alabama, um, both alphabetically the first and also a team that I could actually reasonably see it with, uh, J.D. Davison, uh, Keon Ellis, and then I think Javon Quinterly has got a real shot, especially considering, you know, he's a senior. Uh, he's, you know, going to be in the draft pool. Um, that's a big thing that I think adds to a conversation like this, a question like this, is how many of them are going to actually be in the draft pool. So knowing Quinterly will be in the draft pool is big. Um, and then, you know, Bediaku, Shackelford, um, you know, those are other guys who obviously could, um, you know, Alex Jifu could potentially be in there too. Um you know, I think another team that I think has a real shot of it, uh, if they continue the way they're trending right now, would be LSU. Um, you know, Tari Eason is somebody who I think is a real uh, first-round sleeper right now. Um, and then I think Darius Day is somebody who, you know, that same thing as a senior will be in the draft pool and I think could play his way in the second round. Um, and, you know, if Alex Fudge decides to declare and or if Awani Wilkinson declares, um, you know, Afton Reed decides to declare, uh, these are guys who I think could be potentially uh, on, you know, a team's board and, you know, how they do at the combine and how they do the interview process could could make them real uh, candidates. Um, you know, I think uh, the other one that I wrote down um, would be Memphis. Um, I don't think that uh, it's likely, but I think Durant is getting drafted. And then if Josh Minot or Earl Timberlake both declare, you know, that's obviously, um, you know, uh, both real draftable kind of, kind of candidates, same with Musa CC. Um, and then Michigan, you know, Caleb Houston, Musa Diabetes, Kobe Tufkin, Kobe Bufkin. I don't think Hunter Dickinson gets drafted, but there's a chance at the end of the second round somebody takes a shot on him because of just his physical size. Um, and then Purdue, I think, you know, with Jaden Ivey, Zach Eady, and Trevion Williams, it's at least worth talking about. Um, and then the one that I added sort of as a, as a real sleeper, uh, would be Mega in Serbia with Jovic, yeah. Kazlan, and Oleg Prokowski. Um, I think that those are all three really draftable guys. Um, Shout out so, Oleg, too. I love that. I love you bringing him up. Uh, that's 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 a good sleeper there to, to throw in at the end. But, yeah. I, yeah I, you, you did not like my Purdue pick. Yeah, well, I just – for me, there's a lot of places where I can see one or two draftable guys, and I'm struggling to figure out who that third would be. Trevor Williams would be the third in that case, right? Well, I see. I would put him above Zach Eady on okay. on my kind of interest board right now. I think I have Williams as a top seventy five guy on my board. I don't have Eady in the top one hundred right now, uh, but again, I, I'm certainly amenable to to having that be changed over the the course of the next part. Time to declares, yeah, yeah, always. So, uh, next question comes from Matt Way uh, at Way Matt H on Twitter, former podcast guest here, and a guy who does a lot of work with the Detroit Pistons. Matt wants to know. What do you see as Kendall Brown's ceiling in terms of draft position? Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, Kendall Brown is somebody who's been one of my biggest risers in terms of uh, the fact that while I think jumping from, you know, 60 to 30 might be a bigger number jump, jumping from 20 to, you know, top 10 is a lot more impressive. Um, and, and he's been somebody who's done that for me. I think uh, the last time I put something out, I, yeah, I had Kendall Brown at six, um, and I do like him at six. Um, I don't really see a scenario where I end up liking him more than any of the five guys that I have ranked in front of him at this point. Uh, six seems to be about what I think his absolute ceiling is, to be honest with you, um, and that's already where I have him. So that's not to say he's maxed out, um, but I, that is to say that I'm really high on him as it is. I mean, six is really, really high. Um, I think that, you know, I guess if he started really hitting jumpers at like an insane clip or we started playing like a Scotty Barnes type playmaking role for Baylor for some reason, um, which I don't think is likely, but he is a decent playmaker. Um, potentially, I could move him up in a way that um, would be real to be, the crap top, to be in the top five, but six seems about reasonable and it's where I currently have him, so. Yeah, we, I defer to you on that one just because I know you do a lot more in terms of aggregation and trying to see who else is out there. Like for me, I try not to look at other people's draft boards or try to get a feel for what the consensus is until maybe March. That's around the first time I like to do that to avoid other people's hot takes. I think I can filter my own, but trying to figure out which ones are hot takes from others is always tough for me. Um, I have Brown 7 on my board, so 
very much yeah. echoing kind of where you are with that. I think consensus has them at like 15 right now, but I, that includes a lot of preseason uh, weight uh, to people who haven't updated their big boards yet. So yeah. Yeah. he was, and he was lower for me. I think he was like 24, 25 coming into the season and just uh, he's shooting over 70% from the field. Um, what, 11 games that I think Baylor has played thus far against a lot of great competition. Just it impacts the game in so many ways defensively. I'm a, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan. Uh, next question, actually going to go back to one of our guys that we talked about a little, just a couple minutes ago from Grit and Grind on YouTube. Where do you think Travion Williams will go in the drafts and what's his long-term ceiling? So I'll, I'll take that one first here, Brian, because I mentioned he's a top 75 guy for me. I think that if he does end up getting drafted, it's going to be in the later parts of the second round. You know, he's younger for an upperclassman guy. He's only 21 years old. Just turned that in September. He's so skilled really good facilitator. Think of him being a great short role type of playmaker and a pretty good athlete as well. But one of the things that worries me is that he doesn't have great, you know, rim protection metrics and he's not a very good three point shooter. So not being able to be a great rim protector or a stretch big, I think you kind of got to be competent in one of those two areas would love for the shot to come along because I think that complements his passing really, really well. But at this point, I'm just not 100% in on Williams, which is why I think he's more of a second round guy, if not even undrafted. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I probably have him closer to an undrafted free agent type right now. However, I will say that there are some things that are really, really encouraging. Um, you know, just basically looking at his, his raw metrics, right? Or really his advanced metrics right now. Um, you know, I think that his assist rate uh, for his uh, height is, is really impressive, you know, being above 30% um, as a six foot 10 guy uh, to me, you know, says a ton about, you know, what his, um, you know, secondary role could be uh, in the NBA. Uh, that's, that's about as high as you are from, you know, someone 6'10". I think in terms of current guys, uh, his assist percentage is second highest among guys six foot nine or taller. Um, so that's, that's kind of the same conversation where um, a lot of guys that stand out to me on draft boards typically go. Um, and then, you know, I think his block percentage and steal percentage are both pretty high too. Um, and I also think that uh, the biggest issue that I have with him is that over half of his finishes um, have been post-ups and that's just not where his, his offense is going to come at the next level. Um, you know, he's not finishing in transition. Um, he's not finishing in the pick and roll this year. Uh, obviously that's a lot of the, what to do with Purdue's offensive scheme as well um, and kind of who they go to to finish their baskets. But I just don't really see much of a position for where the ball is going to go to him uh, based off of what he's been doing this year. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that when he's had the ball to finish, he's been uh, fairly efficient. So um, especially on a set offense, you know, he's, he's an option, but I don't know when the offense will ever go to him, especially considering how much he relies on post-ups. Yeah. And, and I think more than anything, he's the type of guy that if you fall in love with him, you maybe take him in the fifties but he's a, a guy that's going to be available to a lot of teams as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, and the one thing that's really worth mentioning in that regard, though, is you look at the way he's accepted his role this year, that's really, I'm sure, uh, ingratiated himself and endeared himself to a lot of scouts. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to scouts who, who specifically look at how guys act on the bench. Is he pouting or is he somebody who's, um, you know, really glad to see his teammates succeeding? Um, because that's where he's going to be in the NBA a lot of times. And he's a he's a real bench mob kind of a guy. And that's something that I think scouts are going to love too. No doubt. No doubt. So uh, Benjamin Jackson, also from our YouTube channel, wanted to know, can Jalen Duran become an elite lob threat or play finisher in the same mold as DeAndre Ayton? And, and this is one for me I'm, I'm not quite there on. I, I get the comparison that people have to throw out with Duran and Ayton because they're not they have the same skill deficiencies away from the basket offensively so if you're trying to figure out how to project their offensive role you see how Aiden has become really good at finishing off the pick and roll screening and sealing finding ways to catch lobs near the, the short corner I just don't see Duran as being the same type of vertical athlete I scouted him seen him play in high school seen him play AAU I, I don't see it in that in that regard necessarily I uh, don't think he handles contact well enough and he might be able to be a little bit better with that when he gets stronger, but uh, I'm considerably lower on Duran as an offensive threat. Uh, but the one, the one area that I think 
redeems him a little bit in terms of draft stock is that he's probably more switchable defensively than DeAndre Ayton is. And that opens up much more possibilities for scheme for any team that might be able to draft him. Where are you at on Duran and what are your, your thoughts there on Benjamin's question? Yeah, you know, so among the scouts that I've talked to, um, you know, the, the, the consensus that I kind of keep hearing um, is guys saying to me, I, I, I don't draft bigs with no motor. And that's kind of the thing that I keep hearing about him when I hear his name. Um, I still think he is a first round pick and probably even a lottery pick just, just, just based on his physique alone. I mean, you know, he's, I guess he is somebody who like, you know, might remind somebody of like a Mitchell Robinson, you know, at the most generous reading, like a very young Dwight Howard, um, just physically completely just his size. Uh, and that's going to attract people. Um, I mean, he's, he's a massive dude. Uh, but I, I think that the lack of motor, um, really turns some people off to the point where, you know, he might slide because, you know, there, there are some teams who wouldn't draft him at all, you know, with any pick. Yeah. And, and we're at the point in the season where these really strong basketball teams are going to stop beating up on low major competition. And every single game is going to be against as athletic as talent, you know, guys that they should be playing against on a nightly basis. And that's going to challenge a guy like Jalen Duran to really see what his motor is made of, to really see if he's going to be able to do all the little things that are required of him to be a big man to succeed at the college level, not even at the professional level. Can he rebound? Can he set physical screens? Is he going to sprint back after picking up a a second foul that might be a ticky tacky and and a BS foul? You know, those are the things that we look for. And now is the time when he can face teams that will punish him if he isn't doing those things. I think that that was, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to dive into the full Alabama game yet uh, that, that they had, but that was one of the things that I heard out of there was that he took a step in the right direction in the Alabama game. And I'm curious to see if that holds up over the long term here. Next question came from Kenneth Robinson on, excuse me, Kenneth Robertson on YouTube. You think Marcus Sasser from Houston is a first round pick? What do you think? Uh, I don't think that anybody has him in the first round right now. Um, I think he, I don't really know too many boards or box drafts that have him um, on really top 60 boards at the point at the moment. That doesn't mean, I mean, Johnny Davis, again, wasn't really on too many of those like two, three weeks ago. And now some guys have him top 10. So it's not to say that he's, he's not, um, you know, I think, uh, something that's really attractive about Marcus Sasser's game is that he's been completely, completely excellent um, in all in all things pick and roll. Um, you know, both playmaking and also uh, scoring and and shooting off the jumper. Um, sorry, sorry, shooting off the dribble uh, and off the catch. His, his jumper has been his jumper has been really, really good. Uh, and these are all things that I certainly look for in my evaluation process for someone his size. Is you know. Is he going to play an NBA style offense in the pick and roll? Yeah, yes. Is he going to is he relying a ton on isolation, or is he going to be able to the team? And he's not really doing the isolation thing, which I think can be a plus. Um, you know, he's he's been somebody who's yeah his jumper you know grades out well both um, you know like I said off the catch or or off the dribble. So um, I think that he's got the makings of somebody who's a draftable player. Um, I don't think anybody has him that I've spoken to or that I've seen in the first round yet, um, but. Again, that doesn't mean that he can't be. I mean, I don't think Trey Murphy was anywhere near the first round uh, this time last year. So I'd like to see, you know, get to know him a little bit, you know, talk to the people that uh, speak about his character and speak about, you know, where he's at uh, in terms of his development too. Um, but, you know, I think that based off right now, I would say um, that's that's not exactly uh, where, where he's at. Um, but I think he's consensus a top 100 guy right now. I think you know, top 100 is definitely a, a place to be where um, you're at least on people's radar and people are going to look at your film. Um, you know, he's somebody you're checking in on as he can continue. So that's something you, you need to be, you know, someone that people are checking on. And he's definitely something people are checking on. No doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt at all. Uh, at this point for me, I'm Marcus Sasser. Intrigued, but not sold. I want to keep watching. I want to see more. The one thing I do know is that if you can play multiple years for Kelvin Sampson, you're one tough SOB. So I, uh, I don't doubt Marcus Sasser in that area. But, Brian, that's that's going to conclude the Q&A here. And, and before we get out of here, just want to thank you again for coming on. Uh, you know, we've been going back and forth for years. I, I think, what was it, several, maybe five or six years ago, we actually played in the same fantasy basketball league. Was that 
And I have I'm, no recollection of that. You pretty, you might be right. You might be right, but I have no recollection of that. All those years so, ago. Sounds likely. But sounds uh, likely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were able to get you on here. Before we let you go, please let the people know, where can they find your work? What do you have coming out soon? What's in the hopper here? Yeah, uh, I'm at my, my day-to-day stuff is that for the win, um, you know, doing as much as I can there on a day-to-day basis, as well as my uh, personal mock drafts and big boards get published at For the Win, um, which is owned by USA Today. Also, USA Today is Hoopsite, which is where I do my aggregate mock draft. Um, I'm going to be doing like an analytics MVP recurring thing. And then I do a column there called Reading the Key as well, where I'm looking at three guys who have stood out to me. Uh, kind of breaking down why they stood out, why they caught my attention. So uh, that's uh, that's a hoop type, and then um, everything else you can just sort of find on Twitter uh, through uh, through my name. So search my name, and you know, search uh, search anything related to it, and you know, you'll find hopefully something because I've got a pretty unique name. And then um, you know, I've got a bunch of interviews coming up down the road. Interviewed PJ Tucker that came out today. Um, got something with Sedona Prince from Oregon uh, that's coming out later this week. Um, got some features that are in the works that are exciting, but won't be ready for a little bit. And then looking forward to getting my draft profiles out, you know, once, uh, once the declaration start coming out for the season. No doubt about it. Well, I think the official nickname now for Brian Kabrowski is the invaluable resource. So we're, we're coining that term. Make sure that you give us some credit if you use it in any of your publications <laughs> moving forward. But uh, there is no doubt about it. You are an invaluable resource and we're going to have you back on probably right before the draft as you're getting through your, your final circuit there with guys and, and conducting some of those character interviews to kind of get a feel on that side of things. But Brian, thank you so much for, for joining us here and have an enjoyable and safe and healthy holiday season. Thank you. I appreciate your time and thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being back again soon.